and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I am, as ever, Ben, excited about today's episode. I've, um, I've actually... Do you follow much classical music, Ben? Is that... Uh... I do. You do? I do. I, I've, I've actually... I've, I've just paused Bach's Art of Fugue, which is, is pretty incomprehensible, to be honest, um, to speak to you, Tom. Oh, goodness um, me. And... Um, I've been I've been wo- I've been woken up for the past three mornings by uh, by my daughter who has a little uh, a little sort of musical hard hard paper book uh, that plays various uh, uh, various bits of music lots of bark so I've I've woken up to extracts from the Brandenburg Concerto uh, each morning at about six a.m. So I have a bit of a headache this morning, to be we, honest. We're going to have to do something about this, Ben, because I was going to mention Bach's cello suites, which I've been listening to over the weekend. If we have exactly the same view on music, <laughs> this is not good for our podcast conversations. We need to find ways to have different interests. But the reason the reason I mentioned the cello suites is, number one, because they are uh, rather like uh, the art of you, just, just pieces of music that are a lifetime's worth of listening in and of themselves. But also, um, you probably do know that Pablo Casals rediscovered the cello suites in around about 1890, the great um, Catalan cellist. He was a teenager. He was just wandering around the back streets of Barcelona, and he went into a secondhand music store, found this music, probably heard some of it in his head just by pulling out the manuscript, took it home, and re- completely uh, brought it to the attention within five, ten years, brought it to the attention of an audience who previously hadn't existed. And uh, so the reason I mention that is is I it's such a wonderful little story. Firstly, I was I was listening to the music, but second of all, it's a wonderful story that had you been a, a little Pablo Casals, imagine hearing for the first time in in a hundred years, two hundred I mean it, it, it there were some niche people who followed the cello suites, but it wasn't the, the general public hearing Bach's voice for the first time in 100 years or 150 years, how incredible that would have been. And it, 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 it rather made me feel in the whole free speech world that we, one of the great things about what we do uh, in the free speech world is we go back to some of these voices and we hear them afresh. Uh, we've talked about Dostoevsky, we've talked about Solzhenitsyn, we've talked about Shakespeare. And I actually find that absolutely exhilarating like spending a weekend listening to the art of fugue the brandenburg concertos all the cello suites going back and listening to these titans uh, of uh, philosophy or literature and hearing their voices afresh and speak to us and help us navigate through some of these issues is a huge positive so it does feel quite i don't know quite sometimes quite depressing talking about all of these things but isn't that a wonderful positive side to what we do yes it is. i think as well i'd add to that tom um that bark fell out of favor for mm. 100 150 years and i'm not perhaps to say he was obscure is is over egging it a bit um but but certainly he i don't think he'd be considered a, a popular composer in the century or so after his death mm. um and I think there is a sense in which people, ideas, philosophies fall out of favour and then have to be rediscovered. And in my more optimistic moments, I, I do wonder if that is what we are on the cusp of now, where the the aesthetics of the woke movement are so played out and clapped out and exhausted and everyone's so fed up of it, that there is scope for uh, a new renaissance. 
yeah. a new enlightenment and that that i think there is a hunger for that even if it is inchoate and people are uh, fumbling their way towards it i think there is a growing realization that you know free speech the, the free speech war is something that um must be won but that isn't that that's at the core of what of what these struggles are but beyond that the point of winning that free speech war is to enable the forms of cultural expression that um the traditional the, the you know the commanding heights of of the arts world as we had in our interview um our discussion last week that they've abandoned mm. and so there is now a moment uh, i think where there is a great desire for those things to be rediscovered so perhaps like bark um these old ideas will find favor once again well um i've actually got a little book in front of me about the cello suites and i think it was it, it at the beginning it talks about how mendelssohn rediscovered the saint matthew passion so m various people discovered parts of uh bark over the over the period but edward devriant uh recalled how bark was at the time mendelssohn rediscovered the saint matthew passion was at that time generally considered an unintelligible musical arithmetician which is apparently a bad thing. Um, but yeah, people had a sense that he was an incredibly academic, incredibly dry, incredibly um, uh, of his time composer. And yet you and I know, and, and this coincidence of both of us listening to the same kind of music over the weekend, um, you and I know that's the opposite is true. We go back to him again and again and again. And, and yeah, it is, it is a wonderful feeling, rediscovering the commanding heights uh, of the the free speech economy, can we say that? Or the free speech culture is an exhilarating and a wonderful thing to do, even if it does come with the discomfort of living through the times we're living through. On, on, the, on the flip side of my optimism, of course, you can only have an artistic world um, that, that is going through this, uh, this new renaissance that I'm hoping for. Uh, if you can pay artists and musicians and authors and of course, to be paid, you need a bank account. <laughs> and that really is the first theme, unfortunately, that we need to talk about. Of course, I, I don't think the story will need any introduction. Uh, Nigel Farage and his, his battle with, uh, with Coots and with NatWest Group, uh, which I think is 39% owned by, by the taxpayer, um, just to set the scene for this discussion. Um, so, Tom, I, I mean, it's been a momentous month, really. I mean, this is something that, to be honest, was not on my radar particularly until... The FSU was debanked by PayPal last year. And since then, we've had a real rash of cases of, of people going through situations like the one that, that Nigel Farage has been going through. Um, I, what, what's your take on this? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the most important part of this story? I mean, this, mm. the, the government obviously has acted at our, you know, at our urging. We've been campaigning for um, changes to financial regulations and so on. That, mm. that, that's now happened. And Andrew Griffiths, the city minister, wrote about that in the Telegraph um, and described the FSU as, I think, the patient zero of the epidemic yeah. of debanking, um, which I think is a pretty apt metaphor. Um, what do you think, Tom? Oh, that's a great question there are so many angles to the story which have been explored at length over the last week the angle i find most interesting is is seeing who who and how we get to the point of principle behind this i think that uh we've seen people go through a process of not necessarily instinctively zooming out from what's happened with nigel farage for example specifically 
and saying, well, you know, we don't like the politics of that individual. And a lot of folks have had to go on a journey and to, and to, to realize how fundamental the point of principle here. And you could, you, could, you could spin out Nigel Farage and spin in Jeremy Corbyn. And I would hope that we would all say exactly the same thing and say that he shouldn't be denied banking uh, facilities for his political beliefs either. And it's astonished me, well, it hasn't, hasn't astonished me, but it is notable um, who has seen the point of principle and who hasn't. And it's been quite surprising. I mean, um, uh, is it John Sopel, I think, who publicly apologized yeah. and said, you know, I, I, initially I, I thought um, this was a non-story and now I've discovered actually this is a story and, and this, that's from someone on the other side of politics. And that, that is admirable and that, again, is, is a glimmer of hope in the midst of this that, that people who may initially have taken one view uh, as the story has evolved, have been perfectly willing to say, "Hands up! I, I was wrong," and um, and I think that that is that's that's really good to see, and I would hope that that that's uh, the sort of thing we will continue to see more of. So that that would be one of the things I've taken away from this. And then, what is the point of principle? Because people do say, you know, it's a free market. You, you know, if a bank doesn't want to do business with you, Ben, because the bank doesn't like your politics, then it's a free market. It's, it's up to the bank. Uh, and I, I think it's also focused our thinking in a number of ways. First of all, it's that point of principle. Well, it's your politics. You know, what business is that of the bank? But second of all, banking is like water. It's like electricity. Uh, if I don't pay my water bill or I don't pay my gas bill, Maybe or maybe ultimately they'll be switched off, but but they are not, except through I think I think it requires a court pro process actually, for your water and your you know court order, for your water or your electricity. So no no private company can just switch off your water or switch off your gas, and I think that's a very good principle, and it should apply to all of these most essential of our utilities. And banking is well and truly in now the the, the set of key utilities. So th th that's the thing. That, those are the things that struck me, Ben. First of all, that point of principle and seeing who was getting it and who didn't seem to get it. And, and the second thing was, um, you know, well, why is this such a key issue? Well, because this is like water, it's like gas, it's like electricity. How about you? What, 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 what struck you as the week's what? news cycle has, has whizzed by? So I, I took to Twitter last week, or X, you I think brave. it's now being called this morning. <laughs> um, on exactly on this point of principle. So I'm going to name and shame a few people um, who have completely missed the point. So first of all, Chris Packham, who said, and this is a quote, can BBC News please explain why it still gives valuable news space to Nigel Farage? According to Wikipedia, he's a former this and that and currently only a broadcaster on GP News. Frankly, I don't care if Tesco withdraw his club card, let alone some vanity spat about his money. As I understand it, the bank is a private bank. It thus has its own independent values and choices, blah, blah, blah. Uh, likewise, uh, Dara O'Brien. I remember when I moved to London and I couldn't open an account at Lloyd's in Crouch End because they didn't accept the Irish passport as valid ID. I didn't go on Newsnight to complain. I just went next door to Buckley's. Nigel is such a drama queen, etc., etc., etc. And there's just one more from a writer called Sam Bright who uh, writes, I think, for The Guardian and Byline Times. And he said that Farage forced the disclosure of internal documents through a subject access request and is now threatening to sue on the basis of what they said chilling an incredibly dangerous precedent to set 
So accessing your own data that a bank holds about you and then threatening or taking action on the basis of that is now considered chilling by people on the left of politics. So how have we got to the point where the great rallying cry of the left is Coots made a commercial decision? How has that become the focus, the, the, the focal point? And of course, the answer is, is it, these people just hate Nigel Farage so much that they can't see the bigger picture. Um, and there's a, there's a, a concept in psychology um, called cognitive decoupling, which is, is a sort of piece of neurological software where if you're a scientist or an engineer or a philosopher, you can, you can apply your thinking to, uh, to understanding ideas in isolation in abstract, and then you can think through in a rule-based system um, the consequences of of breaking those rules. And yeah. so, high decouplers can can see the long-term consequences, even for people they don't like, of rules being misapplied or, or or bad rules being written. But low decouplers, people who can't decouple the fact that they hate Nigel Farage from the longer-term implications of of banks debanking people because they don't like your values. If you can't decouple those ideas, you just don't get it. And so to the, to, to the high decouplers, whether on the left or right of politics, you know, they understand whether they like Nigel Farage or not, what the problem is here. But to a low decoupler, it, 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 I, I said, on, to, to quote myself, I said, it's like trying to explain to a dog what a neutron star is. You're just not going to get anywhere. But what's surprising about that, Ben, those individuals that you, you, you identified are highly intelligent, highly accomplished uh, individuals. And they are, what, what, is it low or high decouplers? Because I love that definition. They're, they would be low decouplers if they're unable to see yeah. the distinction between the, the, the particular application and, and the principle behind. And yet, when you really get into this and you look at who, who gets a bank account, well, murderers they don't get debanked rapists um people who have maybe you know international connections uh high high all these people who who do keep and thank goodness they do they do keep their bank accounts because they're allowed to come back into society we don't shut them down we don't unperson them for some reason you're right they can't see through see through the mist their own red mist of anger at the politics uh, that they disagree with. And um, I think it's very commendable to spot the people who do see that, who are the high decouplers, and to, and, to, and to latch hold of them and make sure their voices are amplified. Because you're right, we, we, need to, we need to make sure this is... Because where does this go? Where does this go? Where, where, where do we go with sort of dossiers being uh, put together on people? Well, we know where it, where it goes. This is really quite pernicious and worrying um, when when banks are, are putting together very, very strange dossiers on individuals. Um, so, yeah. I did read the, the dossier. The Telegraph published the mm. thing in full that, um, that Nigel Farage had got from Coots. And it read almost like the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the type of file that would have been kept by an East German policeman or something. I mean, I, it, it was utterly chilling. Yeah. Um, and... You know, just to go back to one of the examples I gave of um, Dario Brian, who said, so Julia Hartley Brewer had replied to him saying, really don't think you grasp the point here. And he replied, oh, that's a pity, as I intend to spend literally zero seconds doing further research into this story. I mean, it's one thing not, and that was, not knowing was about something. He was proud of that. He was proud of it, yeah. 
so absolutely proud of of not just of being ignorant about the story but of continuing to be willfully ignorant about it and not thinking through the consequences and of course it's there is this decoupling uh thing going on there is this piece of um neurology that you know this piece of software that you have or you don't you know perhaps that's part of part of part of explaining it i think it probably is mm-hmm. um but for all, all of these people, it is also just about virtue signaling, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it, it's so obvious a point is, you know, I'm sort of boring myself stating it, but it's so obviously about signaling, I don't want Nigel Farage. I'm in the right set of people. I have good, good manners and I've been brought up well and I'm part of polite, educated society. And so I don't like Nigel Farage. And that is the overriding consideration. It's a dinner party reaction. Yeah. But I did what you did and went back to the Stasi because the Stasi were mentioned a couple of times in some of the the news cycle reporting. And I do think we have to be careful because I thought, right, let's have a look and see, you know, compare and contrast between this dossier and the sort of thing that Stasi put together. And uh, you're you're in a you're you're on a different level with what that police force put together and and I you know, sometimes all of their neighbors were spying on them, things that were said at dinner. Uh, things that were said when they were called into the police uh, uh, cells, yeah. their, what their cellmate was saying was all was all written down and spun. Uh, things when they were on a date would end up being in their files. Um, you know, the level at which the Stasi were operating at was was you know, multiple times a different planet, different galaxy. So, you know, I thought to myself, okay, maybe there's a comparison here, but we are not anywhere near that yet that's not to say we couldn't get there uh if you put a bunch of things together over a given period of time but uh you know i I took a little bit a crumb of comfort from that having also when i went on a on a bark crawl to leipzig i did pop into the stasi museum and uh you look at the, the the files that they held it's it's a different level i suppose the difference is that the stasi or any 20th century authoritarian system is is gathering information from other sources about a subject yeah. whereas what coots can do or what social media companies can do now is gather information that you yourself have put out about yourself your social media page what you're saying on facebook so they're not you know they're not going to your neighbors and saying oh what's he been up to at the weekend yeah. um but yeah. they do have an immense power of capturing the data you are transmitting to the world and of course we're all transmitting data all of the time all over the place in a way that just wasn't going on in the 20th century so it's it's yeah. a it's a different source of information isn't it which and, and that source of information is far greater um but i i take the point you're making that you know it's it's not like they're they're getting neighbors to spy on people uh, yet yes um no <laughs> but what is a disingenuous grifter uh ben because i i saw that there was that phrase in the dossier a disingenuous grifter and i don't know if you're anything like me i have not a clue and i can't imagine that anyone sitting around a board table has a clue of what that means that is an extraordinarily sort of specific social media twittery type phrase uh that is of no doesn't transmit anything about an individual in in my eyes if that, that if that crossed my desk i'd say i have no idea what you're saying there it sounds pretty bad, I think, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, I, I think it's basically somebody on the right of politics who makes money. Um, they are a grifter but, but in the jargon of the left. No document, especially the document in a, in a, of a risk committee in, a, in, a, in an esteemed institution, uh, no document should contain that phrase. 
you know, no, unless quoting unless quoting someone directly, but as a as a piece of you know evidence or or a part of a story, it's it's very strange. We, we we're we're at that place, but you know mm-hmm. your point about the subject access request, uh, you know that the, um, Nigel Nigel made is is really important because that is something that came in with the GDPR rules of 2018 whereby yeah. we all have a right now under the GDPR to, to put in a subject access request to institutions that may be holding our personal data. That's the point, isn't it? Um, and so at the Free Speech Union, we've now put together an FAQ, which is a frequently asked set of frequently asked questions, as to how to make a subject access request. Uh, so do, do have a look at that on, on our website, freespeechunion.org. It's worth saying, Tom, as well, I mean, from the point of view of institutions, I'm sure subject access requests are considered to be onerous and burdensome and time-consuming. But from the point of view of members of the public, I mean, to give one example of one of our cases at the moment, um, a lady called Sybil Ruth, who we've been helping, and there's a crowdfunder live now for her if you'd like to support her her legal case. She works as an editor for an agency called Cornerstones and was unilaterally dropped as one of their... uh, one of their editors and she submitted a subject access request and was able to discover the real reason why she had been dropped from their books and it was because of her gender critical views and so without the ability to submit a subject access request and find out what was actually being said about her behind the scenes she never would have been able to find out that the reason she'd been dropped was was because she was being discriminated against because of her beliefs so whether it was because of her gender critical beliefs or somebody was dismissed because of their religious beliefs but given some sort of sham faux reason to 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 cover that up a subject access request helps you get to the truth it helps you understand why the decision has been taken what people are saying about you um, if you are being discriminated against as sybil ruth was um, so, it, you know, I, of course, institutions are going to grumble about it, but it's it's pretty incredible that you have people on the left complaining that ordinary members of the public can hold big institutions and banks to account. I mean, that's just laughable, isn't it, that we've reached that point? Well, particularly given you know, the whole 2008 bailout, and this has been a point made yeah. again and again in the news this week, which is obviously we own 39% of, of NatWest. We bailed them out. The banks were... Uh, anathema, particularly to anyone on 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 the left, because they were all about profit, as far as people were concerned, and they're all they, they were the reason that we nearly destroyed the world in two thousand and eight. And now everyone's running to side with the bank and say, well, they have a right, you know, to to close down anyone um, if they don't want to do business with them, which is a complete sort of about turn, as far, as far as I can see. They've gone from being the baddies of the day to the to the goodies of the day to standing up for the new sort of ESG and EDI and value values isn't it that's another thing they talked about in the yeah, in the dossier um, but you know the free speech union we have definitely had a bit of a win here because the government is now going to tighten up uh, the payment services regulations to stop banks and payment processes closing people's accounts just because they've exercised their right to lawful free speech. Um, so that's that's a great win. But I think it's fair to say, Ben, we will probably want it to go further uh, to ensure this actually makes a difference in practice to customers who who have political beliefs that a bank doesn't agree with, which is a strange phrase to, to, to say. We want it to go further. We want it to be particularly punitive 
you know, at the moment, if if companies fail GDPR, uh, fail to abide by GDPR, there's huge punitive damages that a, a company can um, suffer. We would want to see the same sort of thing for a bank shutting down a customer's account just because of their political beliefs, punitive damages. It would not be worth an institution doing this again, and it would really mean that it doesn't happen again. Uh, so it's a huge win on the one hand to get this to get this uh, commitment to changing uh, the regulation, but on the other hand, we, we would really like to see it go further. There is, I think we, we, you've sketched this out a little bit already, but there is, of course, a sort of hardcore libertarian argument which would, would say, well, actually, what, what these banks do, perhaps with the exception of the NatWest Group, because it's part owned by the taxpayer, um, but what these banks do is really just up to them. I, I think the response to that, I don't think we really need to repeat it. Is it as you've said, it's like a utility. It's something that is absolutely essential to, to modern life. So we're not just talking about normal goods or services. We're talking about something that's absolutely fundamental and therefore quite rightly it's regulated um but just to go back sorry i risk laboring this point but it's been so astonishing seeing the low decoupler side of this argument so Hmm. motivated by hatred they're trying to grasp anything to try and side with the banks or uh, buttress what what the bank has been saying even as the bank has had to change its story over and over again um and one of the points that has been made uh, has been to refer to the Ashes Bakery case, otherwise known as the Gay Cake case, yeah. which was where, yeah, so this was this was in Northern Ireland. A member of the public happened to be gay, asked for a uh, asked a Christian baking company to print a cake with a message "Support Gay Marriage" on it. This was, I, I think, this case was fought for four or five years. It seemed to go on and on and on and on, um, and the nub of it was that um, the company quite quite rightly, could not discriminate against this customer because he was gay. So they couldn't decline to sell him a cake because he was gay. But that isn't what they were doing. They declined to print the message because it was contrary to their Christian beliefs. And, of course, they were ultimately vindicated in holding that position. So if the story with Nigel Farage was that he had gone to a printing company and they had declined to print um, political leaflets for him, say... Mm. I would have a lot of sympathy with a company who said, "No, we don't want to do that," because mm. they would be they would have a they would have a reasonable claim that it was compelled speech. So, likewise, I wouldn't say that a Muslim printer should have to print cartoons of Muhammad. I think that's a reasonable thing to decline. But, but likewise, a Muslim printer shouldn't be able to say, "I'm not going to serve you because you're an atheist," because yeah. that's a discriminatory reason. But they can say. No, I'm not going to to print this particular material for you because it it goes against my my belief system and it would be compelled speech. So there is a really important distinction. But of course, I, I don't think that, that I don't think that's really of interest to people who are the low decouplers who just hate Farage and will side with any enemy of his uh, in order to to monster him. Um, but I I do think that that is an, that is an essential distinction that is really important to understand because Coote is arguing that they can refuse a customer just because they disagree with, with that customer's views. Um, but they're not being compelled to endorse his views. They're not being required to print leaflets for Nigel Farage um, or say anything nice about him that they just have to give him a bank account. I think it is very important to understand where the, uh, the low decouplers are coming from. I mean, I, 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 
I can't fully understand uh, the this this view of um, well, we're not going to we're not going to spend any more time thinking about this or worrying about this. I, I, but I, I, I I'm utterly bemused by that um, that people would would not see that there's such a fundamental principle at stake in the first place and. I don't have an answer to it, Ben, but I think it's worth a lot more thinking and a lot more exploration as to how we have reached this point of, as we say, very well, you know, esteemed and well-established individuals saying quite clearly that this is not worth thinking about further. Um, it's a bit like the old, the debate is over, uh, whereas, you know, the debate isn't over we we have to think these things through and actually we may be pushed in an uncomfortable direction because of it but that's a good thing and it will force us like for example i have tried very hard this week to say what exactly is it that makes this not the same as a baking company or, or whatever and i think we've, we've gone over that in the last few minutes um but i've enjoyed that process i've enjoyed Forcing myself to think that through again from first principles, not necessarily comfortable all the t all the time, and it comes back to that point about the discomfort of changing your mind about something. Uh, but going back to first principles, as a mathematician, it's what we do all the time. That is almost the very definition of being a mathematician. Uh, a bit like you, I guess, as a historian, you're going back to sort of historical principles. Um, but yeah, maybe it would be good to to explore a little further and really understand why people are shutting down the thinking around this. Well, let's try and get a psychologist on um, at some point in the next month or so to talk about decoupling, because it's something that I think we see all the time. And I think it's something that you know, under the surface explains quite a lot of what's going on with cancel culture, actually. I think it's quite an important mm. part of it. So let's try and find somebody who can talk to us about that. Um, mm. But just to respond to your, to your last point, I mean, the I completely get if you're from a libertarian perspective, uh, you can have a completely coherent philosophy that the government should never regulate any private business in any way. Um, or if there is regulation, it should be extremely light touch. That's a coherent philosophical view it's not one i happen to share but it's a completely coherent philosophy but what isn't coherent is to say um that there should be this system of rules oh but they only apply to people i like and we can disapply them to people i don't like and that's what the uh, supporters of coots are basically boxed themselves into doing yeah i think there's a great article by uh, stephen daisley in the spectator um and what I rather like about his article on this is that he says, uh, and, and he talks about Toby Young being debanked and PayPal. Uh, and he also says, uh, by the way, Toby also writes for The Spectator. And then he says, oh, bye, by the way, I also think the Daily Skeptic is completely loopy. Um, but the point he's making, and this isn't to critique Toby, our boss, I don't want to lose my job because of it, um, the point, the point I'm making is that, again, someone who disagrees with that particular line of politics, at the end, he makes the point, you know, uh, that a liberal must reject what we're seeing wholesale. You know, progressivism, he ends the article with, progressivism is not liberalism run amok. It is the totalitarian impulse with a hashtag be kind badge attached. Again, a high, a high decoupler there. So it's sort of not liking 
Toby in that case, but the principle underlying absolutely aligned with the principle. And really quite a good insight there about the difference between sort of progressivism, liberalism, totalitarianism, and that be kind badge, which is, as we know, it's it's be kind or else. It's a threaten, uh, threatening fist behind it. Um, so, yeah, I would love to talk to a psychologist about some of this. But one of the, one of the, uh, the interesting dimensions, another interesting dimension of this is, you know, where, from where has this come from? Banks talking about values, banks signing up to, and we've talked about EDI and, and all of that thing, sort of thing. Um, what's your view on how what's happened in the debanking world links in with some of the EDI, some of the values, some of the ESG stuff that's going on um, in partnership with that? What's your view on that, Ben? Well, the Times had a report a few days ago, actually, Tom, that answers that question very directly, that Coots had updated its client rules after the murder of George Floyd. And so it, it seems to have been a pretty, pretty direct consequence that uh, they introduced this clause about discriminatory conduct by clients. And so it seems to have just been part of the general radicalization of institutions, I think you mm. could say, about... Um, race, racial politics, gender, and so on, following the murder of George Floyd. So it seems to have been part of that. I think I've described on the podcast before how um, I, I was on paternity leave in, in 2020. So most of, of the sort of early pandemic is a bit of a bit of a blur. Um, and I sort of, I, my brain only started working again in that summer uh, after having, you know, a little bit of sleep here and there. Um, and it, it was just extraordinary being kind of disconnected from the world, firstly by lockdown, but secondly by um, yeah, being a new parent. Um, and just seeing this this hysteria about mm. this murder, awful as it was, on the other side of the world, um, and, and, and sort of compensating for that murder, becoming the animating impulse behind the activity of every yeah. institution in British life. And so Coots is just completely fitting in with that mold. And I think also, you see in universities, it tends to be the more elite universities and the more elite public schools tend to be the most radical and the most conscious of their quote unquote white privilege and all the rest of it. Um, and I think probably the same dynamic is is at work here where Coots is uh, seen as being the, uh, the elite bank, bank of the royal mm. family and so on. Um, perhaps it feels that it needs to compensate all the more for that. And so it, it, it's pursuing these things with uh, with particular fervour. I'm speculating out loud a little bit. I'm thinking out loud a bit. But I think mm. certainly the university and public school analogy uh, is very sound. We, we certainly see that, you know, schools in North Oxford say, mm. I'm certain are far more radical than minor public schools in other parts of the country. What's the collective name for a for a bunch of horses? Uh, is it a herd? It's not a herd of horses, is it? I'm trying to trying to think because we haven't had just one Trojan horse, Ben. We've had a blank of Trojan horses, and I can't think of what what a, what the plural name well, for horses I think is. If, if they're military horses, I'd say squadron. A, a squadron, squadron of, of Trojan horses, and you're absolutely yeah. right. They went in at around about that time in 2020, dressed up as these uh, three-letter acronyms, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, 
Um, and another phrase which I came across in my latter days uh, in the city was bring your whole self to work. You can be you. Yeah. All these sorts of things that are wonderfully um, easy to sign up to without realizing the implications of what you're signing up to. And interest, the interesting thing as well, which I find odd about that, when uh, people come up with a, everyone comes into a business with new ideas about how the business should be run. You know, why do you do it like that? That's stupid. Stop it and do something else. Or, you know, why do we run the models like that? That doesn't make any sense. And it takes a lot of patience from the more senior people to say, it may well not seem to make sense, but if we stop doing that, it would have consequences that you don't fully understand. You know, it will have consequences for people in the compliance department. It actually has consequences. The department I always come back to is the tax department. Everything seems to affect tax. And so you have to spend a long time explaining to people learning the trade that you can't just tear things up and start again because things are part of a complicated system. And overly simplified solutions in inverted commas uh, will have unforeseen consequences that could be quite catastrophic. And so big decisions have to have, and, and I, hate, I hate to say it, but they have to have some bureaucracy. You have to set up a steering committee. You have to have all the voices at the table. I'm the last person who likes bureaucracy and administration. But for a big implementation project or change in an organization, you need to hear all the views. You need to expound those views and work out the best way of executing. And then here comes EDI, this squadron of Trojan horses. And in five minutes, it's incorporated into very important documents. The first bit of that equation is Chesterton's fence. It's the idea that if you come across a, uh, a fence in the middle of a field, an empty field that appears to be completely purposeless, that you should not tear it down until you understand the reason why it's there. Because it's only once you've taken the fence down thinking it's pointless that you see the cattle coming over the hill. Um, <laughs> and that, that, that's what's happened, I, I think, in um, you know, since 1968, say, um, that, that we've found or rather I should say my parents' generation, have found all of these apparently purposeless fences and fields, happily ripped them all down. And then it's it's only now that we've seen actually that there are reasons why, for instance, um, men are deferential to women. And it's not about sexism. It's because men are stronger and more violent. And actually a culture that encourages gentleness towards women um, is going to be a better one for women and girls. Um, and so you know, once you tear down the fence of, uh, you know, the purposeless fence of men opening doors for women out of courtesy and chivalrous behaviour, for instance. Once you start tearing away those fences, those things that seem like purposeless, archaic rules, then you start to see the cattle coming over the hill. Yeah. And that's what what's you, what you've just described in terms of corporate governance, is that there are all these sort of fusty, outdated ideas, and uh, we've lost sight of why these fences have been put up, and then you tear them down, and then you find yeah. yourself, if you're coot, in the midst of an almighty scandal. And that's, what, that's what's happened. And, and if the farmer appears over the horizon and comes running towards you saying, I need that fence, don't tear it down. Now the response is, well, you need to shoot the farmer. The response is, the farmer isn't yeah. getting with the program. We've got to fire the farmer. And then what happens is you fire the farmer 
because the farmer wasn't getting with the program. And you haven't just got the problem at the fence that should be there isn't. The cows aren't being milked. <laughs> the, the, the sheep aren't being lambed. The, all the other parts of, of what should be happening aren't because you fired the farmer. You fired the one with all the expertise. Yeah. You fired the one who gets this. And that's what we see in our casework all the time. You raise your hand and say, I'm a little bit hesitant about the speed at which yeah. we're pushing through some of this EDI and some of this unconscious bias training. And, you know, maybe there are some gender critical views that we might want to listen to or, or you know, there are some tensions here. You're fired. And then you yeah. lose that individual who's probably a very experienced individual who probably has a very important job in the business and is not easy to replace. And so you're, 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 you're asset stripping at the same time. And so I, I love that. I hadn't heard of Chesterton's fence and I, I hope that Chesterton and his fence are, are, are well again. Um, but I think it's, it's an analogy that you really can build on and, and push to, 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 to reflect what we're seeing. I think it perfectly describes what's happened is is that over the process of, say, 30 or 40 years, all of the fences were taken down. The whole ecosystem's collapsed. The cattle are running amok. Um, we've just shot the farmer. <laughs> and now people are running around desperately trying to build new fences to, to try and fix the problem. Um, and so that's why we have all of these new speech codes, all of these new rules about, about what you can say, about the interactions governing men and women in the workplace and that sort of thing um and very stringent rules about sexual harassment and so on um new rules about what you can say about gender and about race rules like a uh, person of color is acceptable but colored person is among the most horrendously racist and offensive things you can say to somebody i mean try explaining that to somebody who's autistic mm. or somebody who doesn't speak english as a first language i mean for goodness sake um and so mm. all of these little Fences are being, barbed wire fences are being built all over the places, electric fences, um, zapping people, cutting people to shreds, ruining people's lives and livelihoods. Um, and, it, and it's all because the original system has been torn down completely thoughtlessly. And you see this in, in architecture. So, you know, the rise of you know, knocking down central Birmingham or if you see Exeter city centre, for instance, um, the brutalist monstrosities that arose in the aftermath of the Second World War or because of 1960s town planners, it's exactly the same thing. Um, but we see it in HR handbooks and workplace dignity policies. Um, and, and, that's and what's it, happened. It would be nice to think, it'd be nice to hope that with what's happened in with Coots and the banks uh, in the last week, that the line would be drawn in terms of not not as in drawing a line underneath something, but a, but drawing a connection between the values that have been signed off in a particular moment of frenetic uh, action. We've got to be seen to be doing something, and then the consequence of a dossier that contains contains phrases like disingenuous grifter, which I still don't yeah. really understand. Would someone somewhere draw that thread and say, do you know what? We probably need to go back and think again about these values. We ought to go back and think again about bring your whole self to work and how that's brought politics into work and created this new woke capitalism concept. That would be a great outcome as well as the success with the changing to the payment regulations and the government taking notes, a great outcome would be for banks, financial institutions, and others to say, we're going to just have a bit of a rethink. But are they going to double down, Ben? Because this is what we keep seeing, that it's not what we 
what you'd say logically ought to happen. There ought to be uh, let's let's reel this in a bit, take control again. What we're seeing happening every time is no, we're doubling down on this. There, we need more of it. We need more of it. We we just didn't get it quite right the first time round. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Lord Frost published an article in the Telegraph on the nineteenth of July. If you've not read it, I'd encourage you to. Um, and to just take a step back actually before I talk about it, one of the conversations that we've had very frequently that I think people talk about um, when discussing these issues quite frequently, you know, the nature of woke, what is it? Is it a new religion? Is it a replacement for Christianity and so on? And certainly that's, that's part of it, as you and I have talked about, Tom. But yeah. he describes it as a new state ideology. And I think that is as good a description as any. Um, and I think it captures what I've talked about before, which is my theory of working towards the woke, which Tom, you and I discussed the other day. Mm. Um, and this is something I've, I've purloined and adapted from Ian Kershaw. And it's my theory of how modern Britain really works. Um, and it's that there is not a cabal of people who are enforcing woke on the rest of society there's there's not a sort of boardroom where where this stuff is being planned it's just that people have detected accurately that if you want preferment if you want to keep your job and be promoted and be successful it's mm. quite helpful if you have a certain set of views about about transgender or about race um, and it's quite good if you can speak in it in an intellectual or pseudo-intellectual middle-class way about these issues, and if you use the right phrases, um, and if you don't sort of trip over the shibboleths and the the, the, the traps that are set for people who aren't from middle-class backgrounds. Um, and that this state ideology, is, as Lord Frost called it, permeates everything. And if and it also produces this sort of radicalization where institutions are competing with each other and internally, to become as woke as possible because they are working towards what the demands of social justice will become. So we see this all the time. We talked about this with the Brecon Beacons being renamed. Yeah. There's no serious movement of people calling for that to happen, but these institutions are working towards the woke. They're working in anticipation of what woke will demand of them. Um, and it produces this arms race. And like all revolutions, there's no obvious end point until you have a, a Napoleon come in and put a stop to it. Mm. Um, it. It will just run and run. And I think one of the... I've been persuaded of this, that the root cause of this, or one of them in Britain, is the Equality Act and the notion of protected characteristics. And that piece of legislation is a double-edged sword because uh, we can use the original belief aspect of it to defend people we can say well you can't discriminate against people like Sybil Ruth because of her gender critical beliefs those beliefs are protected um, and, and, and you know you can crowbar many different beliefs under that um, that clause that that protected characteristic but the trouble is by creating this sort of elite citizenship for people who can claim victimhood of some kind um, I think that has that has fed into perhaps even created this dynamic of working towards the woke. And so it has created, to finish this this rather elongated thought, it has created what, what David Frost calls the new state ideology, um, and it is fueling it. I think I'd call it the dead hand of woke. You know, there is no like intelligent that. brain at the top. It's a dead hand on the tiller. 
like a sort of rather ghostly pirate on a ship, you look up and you think, my goodness me, that is terrifying. <laughs> there is no one steering yeah. this ship. It's just zombies um, getting on with their lives. Then they're not, they're not <laughs> a complete mix of metaphors, you know, bad zombies, good zombies. They're not bad zombies. Uh, they're trying to be what they need to be to be secure, to, to pay their mortgage, to be promoted. And uh, but there's no in, yeah there's no intelligence at the top of the at the top of the pile actually making this happen. So yeah, I like that working towards the woke state ideology, dead hand of the woke. Uh, if any listeners have any other <laughs> the phrases that we could use, we'd love to hear them. Um, nice pithy description of what we're what we're seeing and what we're what we're what people are doubling down on uh, is always helpful. Um, some of, some of these get written up, don't they? I remember the um, virtue signaling article in The Spectator was written, and The Stepford yep. Students was written 10, 11, 12 years. And some of these little little phrases are really important, actually, in the discussion because they, they summarize what's happening. And if you get a version of a phrase to describe it that resonates with the wider population, you get the discussion going. So I'm quite serious about that. If there are people listening who, who, who have another... Uh, pithy description of what we're talking about uh, do tell us we'd love to hear we would indeed well Tom I think we've probably run out of time um, but we'll be we'll be back next time with an interview with Julian Phillip who is another person who's been discriminated against because of her gender critical beliefs um, has a very interesting story to tell us so we're looking forward to talking to her uh, Tom is there anything you want to add no, nothing, nothing to add. I'm, I'm watching this news cycle continue around the banking situation and I'm feeling quite optimistic about the direction it's going in, actually. But, you know, I just say, just remind people that um, the Free Speech Union is very much in the battle for this. So do join us. Go to freespeechunion.org and sign up to become a member. You can become a full member or a discount member, depending on your, your situation. And uh, we'd love to have you join us and uh, also subscribe to the podcast. But thank you very much for listening. Thank you. It's a big thumping victory we've won with debanking. And obviously we couldn't do it uh, without the support of our members. The Free Speech Union wouldn't exist without you. So 